0: Welcome to the Aligned Musician Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kimberly Hankins, and I'm a violist as well as a yoga and breathwork facilitator. I created this podcast to empower musicians like you to find your own path towards healing and normalize conversations around musicians' wellness. I'm so grateful for your support and thank you for joining me. Known for his versatility as a violist, Louis Privetera maintains a balanced career as an active chamber musician and educator. A founding member of the Tetra String Quartet, Louis has toured extensively as a performer and teaching artist throughout the Southwestern United States, Brazil, Ecuador, and Germany. A passionate educator, Louis is a proud studio teacher of students of all ages, some of which have gone to study music at universities and conservatories around the United States. He has held faculty positions at Arizona State University, Arizona School for the Arts, and at Rosie's House, a music academy serving underprivileged youth throughout the Phoenix metropolitan area. Recent teaching engagements include the American String Teachers Association National Conference, as well as the Summer Pre-Collegiate Studies Program at Stanford University. Lewis earned a Master of Music degree at the Peabody Conservatory and a Bachelor of Music degree from Arizona State University. His principal teachers include Victoria Chang, Nancy Buck and Cynthia Dubrow. So I met Lewis uh, pretty soon after I moved to Arizona for the second time, um, this time to co uh, start my doctorate degree at the University of Arizona. And at that time, Uh, I was just starting in the Graduate String Quartet, and I think I met Lewis when you first um, performed and had like a a special lecture as part of Tetra, and Tetra is a very well-involved string quartet in the community, so it was really cool to meet you and then later um, play some gigs with you and, and get to know you better. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So, Lewis, uh, for this episode, you requested the title, You Can't Get There From Here. Um, do you want to share a little bit about why you wanted this for a title and uh, and a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, um, this is a phrase that's stuck with me since childhood. Um, it actually comes from a story my dad used to tell. Um, he was uh, in the 1960s, he was stationed in Charleston, South Carolina when he was in the Navy, and for some reason, he had to drive to a more rural part of the state. And then when trying to get back to Charleston, he got lost. And he finally happened upon like a little roadside, you know, service station or something like that. And there was this man sitting outside of the building and he asked him, can you tell me how to get back to Charleston? And this guy is like, um, well, if you go down this road and you you hang a left and the actually that you can't do that well maybe if you go here and that and and so this just continued to finally this guy was like actually you can't get there from here which is ridiculous right like you can get anywhere and obviously he left charleston so there's no reason why he can't get back to charleston but um my dad used to share that story as just like a funny anecdote um and I guess as I've aged, I've I've thought of that story and reflected on it a little bit. And that phrase um is something I've given a lot of thought to because I I feel like in my own life, in my own, you know, journey as a musician, I feel like I've gotten in my own way so many times that like I don't feel like I can get there from here. Or We've been taught things or or, are part of a system that's teaching us like, oh, that's impossible. You can't do that. Um, And as soon as I realized that there was some meaning behind what was originally just kind of a funny story, um, it inspired me to think like, well, how can I, how can I transcend that? You know, what, what is possible in my life that. I'm not actually thinking is possible right now. What's possible for my students and and all of that. So um, when you invited me to be part of this conversation and, and I recalled that story, I'm like, that could kind of be a perfect title. So that's where it came from.
0: I love that so much. And I feel like I can relate to that story a lot as well, that there have been times in my life where I felt like, you know, to win my dream job or to create my dream career in music was something so unobtainable to me, Um, not just because of my own uh, limitations and and perceived setbacks in my own mind, but because I felt like the environment itself was set up in such a way where I had to follow this one specific path if I wanted to be successful. And so I love how... um, I love how you kind of touched on that and how you had to find your own kind of version of success in all of this.
1: Yeah, I, you know, when you think about as musicians, what we do, we we go to school basically just to be chastised all the time, right? To be told like, oh, that wasn't good enough. Work harder, do more. You don't play in tune. That rhythm was wrong, you know? And it, And I feel like when you're in a pattern like that, And especially when you're young, it's easy to get trapped in this, like, very narrow lane of what you think is good enough. Um, You know, when I was in high school, I had this amazing private teacher who made me just love music, like, so much. And she was really the, the catalyst for why I decided to go to college for it. And when I got to college, it was definitely... like you have a lot of work to do you have a lot of catching up you need work on your your playing technique and blah 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 blah. and the more i heard those things it was like oh my gosh i'm i'm not enough like i'm i i and and it became part of my self-worth like well if i don't play in tune there that means i'm a bad person or, or something and and maybe that's just because of age or or whatever but um I don't know. I think there's something in our system where, or at least as I'm a teacher in the way that I can contribute to our system is, you know, I don't teach my kids in a way that's just about the finish line. It's about the process and, you know, celebrating even the smallest of victories. Right. And then, you know, recognizing progress and, and just trying to instill joy and intention in what they do. And it's not just about being perfect. So, um, in my adult brain, it's really easy to say all this. But when I was 20, I could definitely use this advice. But yeah.
0: Oh, and it's, it's so ironic, too, because it's like, we're in a field that's supposed to be a creative art, right? Right. And it's like, that's kind of the perception going into it as like, Oh, my gosh, I'm gonna get I'm, I'm so creative, I'm getting this creative outlet. And then in classical music in that world and trying to hone your craft as a classical musician, I feel like a lot of the narrative is around perfection, how to become more perfect as an artist. And in some ways, like, I feel that it's hard to balance being creative and also being perfect at the same time. Like, is that even something achievable? Right. And can you have can does perfection even exist? But can you have um, perfection while also being creative? And I don't right. know that that's possible.
1: Right. And I the word I, I think perfection is such a dangerous word. Um, I prefer excellence because, you know, when I when, like working with my students, for example, it's like the work ethic that you have could be excellent. Be the, the creativity that you are using could be excellent sure that performance could also be excellent but i don't know none of us are perfect beings in any capacity right and just because you can't play that paganini caprice perfectly doesn't mean you failed and i think with you know with everything with the pandemic and just even you know there's been a lot of talk in our industry of just like how even you know we're losing audiences and engagement and all of that. I think there has to be retooling of how we educate young musicians about how they not only have to be excellent musicians, technicians, all of that, but they have to be excellent business people, entrepreneurs. You know, there's a lot of skills that I think the system needs to add. And... To really, I think, and and know that there's like a place for all of us within that system. And it's not just about winning that audition. And especially when there's so many, there's thousands of us who want to have a career in music, but those jobs don't necessarily exist. So we have to create them, create them ourselves. So, excellent.
0: Yeah, (laughs) excellent. I love that. And um, I think too... It can be easy to feel like, um, at least in my own experience, I felt like being a violist, we're already set up at a disadvantage. Yeah. Like our instruments are not standardized. Um, We also, more often than not, played violin first. And I think that there's a lot of that kind of narrative that like, oh, we're failed violinists. (laughs) Right. And it's like I, I don't agree with that at all but it's still so um, seeped into the classical music right. culture and I don't know I don't know if you relate to that at all or if you've seen that in the students that
1: you've had 100%. Um, oddly enough, I actually started on viola Um, I'm one of the few, you know, there aren't many of us. Um, Back when Arizona started strings and public school programs in the third grade, not fifth or sixth, which is, which is now, um, I ended up on viola by happenstance. And um, the problem with a lot of like the music that you're playing in schools and stuff is that violas are typically playing a supportive role, not playing melody a lot. And so I feel like over the first couple of years of development, if a kid is just in, you know, their public school program, a lot of times the violas can fall bar- behind a little bit. And even in my own teaching, there's something about, you know, how mo- you know, violas don't typically start young, right? Like, you're not putting a viola in a three-year-old's hands. That never happens, um, at least to my knowledge. But um, I'll, I'll meet private students who are at a certain age, and they are what you would think as being behind of where you should be for that age and you're playing catch up. And, um, I think that's where all the viola jokes come from, right? Like, it's just, there's like a slowness to what we do, I guess. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, and also, I think when you brought up playing violin early, it was interesting. Um, a lot of the people that I was in conservatory with, you know, these, these amazing students who could play circles around me. And I'm like, Oh my God. Um, a lot of them were former violinists who had played violin long enough to be really skilled and be very virtuosic and they wanted more opportunities. So they just started playing viola and it's like, all of a sudden they can do all these things. I'm like, well, uh uh-oh.
0: It's, yeah. I mean, that can be hard too. Um, because I don't think a lot of other instruments have that experience where you can be working on your instrument for a long time and be in school. And suddenly there's a new member of your viola studio who is um, a transfer from a violin studio. And you just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so behind. Like, what am am I doing? How how is this person and it's it's hard not to compare yourself yeah. you're like this person started being like yesterday and, and right. I might feel like I'm I'm not at a at the same level as them and it's like uh I don't know and it's like that word level too I think we oftentimes try to prescribe students as being a certain level in the classical music world and it's like uh it's like, who decides what right, right. level somebody is or not, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that goes back into this whole idea of what what success means. Because mm-hmm. you could have a student that, um, I mean, we're all human. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses. And I think it's so easy to focus on what the weaknesses are and try to make our weaknesses improve. Yeah, But what about our... What about the areas that we're already great at?
1: Right, right. I when I got to Peabody, um you know, it was a very different environment than ASU was. By the time I graduated ASU, I was at the top of the totem pole, you know, sitting in the front of orchestra, getting a lot of the opportunities, playing in a great quartet. Um, and then Peabody, it's like I'm in the middle of the road as a graduate student and my first studio class. There were two violists. One played Vinyowski, Scherzo, Tarantella, and the other played the Chicote. And I'm sitting there like, "Where am I? Like, what? What is this?" And um, I definitely went through a lot of um, uh, a lot of doubt in my mind, and uh, uh, I don't know. It was it was very hard those first few months because. I kind of had this like imposter kind of syndrome where I was like, what am I doing here? Do I really belong here? Why would she accept me in the studio when there's when there are there all these people who can do things so much better than I can? And it took me almost to the end of my master's, but um, my teacher at the time, Vicky, she, you know, in a lesson before I started playing, she's like, you know, Lewis, I just want to let you know, I really appreciate, what you always have to say in studio class. You make some very astute comments and I think, you know, it, it, there's a lot of value to them. So thank you. And that moment kind of signaled something in my brain that was like, you know what? Maybe I can't play the box Chacon and that's okay. But, you know, that doesn't mean I'm not good at X, Y, and Z. And those things should be celebrated. And I carve a niche for myself in those areas. And ideally there's going to be a place in our communities for all the people that I'm in the studio with. And we all have different jobs and roles and not, there's not one that's better than the other. But again, in our industry, you know, if you don't get the college professorship, if you don't win the orchestra job, it's like, I don't know, it's almost like you're prescribed to fail, but those jobs don't exist. And I think we have to do a better job individually of understanding what it is we personally need to be said and happy with our lives. And, you know, just playing in tune is not necessarily going to do that, right? So that was was an important moment for me where I was like, yes, there are things that I could do better, but I do these things really well also. And Mm. that's great. And that's enough
0: yeah and I, I think that like the music education system it's set up in such a way where we uphold these ideals because we think that well we want our students to succeed right we want our students to have more opportunities to have more doors open for them and so I feel like it's stacked in a way where many educators feel pressured to um to focus on certain things or to play certain repertoire or to, uh, yeah, play in a certain way or try to, try to hone their skills in a specific way. And I think it can be challenging when we have a student and we want them to just kind of explore, um, the full spectrum of what's available to them and not limit them. Um, and so, yeah, are they? Are, do you have any thoughts on that? Or are there any things that you bring to your students? You encourage for your students to help them not limit themselves, maybe, or see, or feel like they're um, they don't have to compare themselves.
1: That I mean, it's it's challenge as a teacher. Uh, I actually have in my studio right now four kids who all go to the same school, who see each other every day, and so. Comparing themselves to each other is like definitely happening. Um, and obviously at that age too, where, you know, what chair you sit in an orchestra equates a lot. Right. Um, but for me in my teaching, I I really focus on the process of learning. I think more than anything else, I, I I think what was missing for me at, at a point in my education where like my first teacher who really made me love music and and made me very musically aware, I was not necessarily given a lot of tools to feel like I could practice successfully. Um, or even know where to begin sometimes. Like if something you know difficult was put on the stand in front of me, what's step one? A lot of times I didn't know. So for me, that's very important is that whatever, how difficult or how easy this music is in front of them, there's an understanding of like, I don't have to shut down. I don't have to freak out. I can figure this out. And instilling this sense of confidence that they know how to do step one, step two, and how to eventually figure that out on their own without me being there. Um, And, you know, as, as someone who teaches, you know, middle school, high school students, 98% ninety eight percent of the students that I will work with in my career are not going to go on to college or be professional musicians you know they'll they'll go on to other things so I find it's very important to instill this this love of the process in what we're doing and and the celebration of like, hey, you did step one. do you see what you did like that was incredible and now we're gonna build on it this much and and celebrating those things and when this kid is done working with me for whatever reason, they move on to that next part of their life, remembering that time as, as productive, as, as um, celebratory. And, and that's going to make them want to go to concerts more. I think as adults, that's going to make them to maybe have their children play instruments as well. And um, yeah, it's not just about playing perfect. It's not just about the finish line, the end result, you have to instill this love of the process. And I hope I'm doing that, I can't say for sure, but that's what I'm trying to do with this.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful, I love that. And I think that a lot of us um, as musicians, we kind of always want to skip to the end. We don't have to like sit with the process because that process can be very uncomfortable or we can be criticized by others if we are too vulnerable with wherever we are in that process. It's yeah. a lot of times easier to just kind of skip to the end. And so I love how you hold space in such a way where your students can can feel like they can explore that that middle ground. Yeah, so
1: that's that's where the discovery really happens, you know. And and I don't know because the finish line is going to look different for everyone, right? There's not a one size fits all and as I was talking about my experience at Peabody earlier, that, that that was very important for me to realize that it's okay. It's okay if my double stops aren't as consistent as I want them to be. Like, it's not, like, that doesn't change anything. You're still good at these other things. It's fine, you know? You can always keep working to make things better. Um, and if we weren't doing that, what's the point of living? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so...
0: Right. Yeah. What's the point of playing music if we can't enjoy it and enjoy the process in it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, so, so you were able to navigate this all for yourself, this like music academia and, (laughs) you know, you know, dealing with, um, with just trying to, uh, get to the other side of feeling like you're comparing yourself to others or like, what is my place in music? Yeah. And so, um, did you always start out wanting to be in a string quartet or wanting to play chamber music or was it something that just kind of happened?
1: Some of my best memories earlier on actually revolved around chamber music. Um, I was fortunate enough that here in Phoenix, there was a string quartet camp that happened every summer that my private teacher recommended to me. And I got to do that for like a week. And so I remember my first experience with that. There's something about it that just, I really connected to. Um, I always liked it better than playing an orchestra personally. Um, I felt like I had more of a, an important role in what was going on. And I liked that feeling of, being part of a collective, but also individual as like a single voice. Um, So I got to do that every summer in high school. And then I was just really fortunate, excuse me, fortunate when I was at ASU that there was a, a really, you know, start to this great chamber music program there. And I was placed in really great quartets with fellow students that, again, just very positive experiences. And I got to work with, you know, St. Lawrence, Juilliard Quartet, Um, And it was game-changing in that way. And for whatever reason, it just, again, that that type of playing just spoke to me more than sitting in a a large orchestral section. Um, And I find even in just teaching, you know, like with Tetra, I've been fortunate enough to run our own summer camp for the last several years. And when my students go and participate for like the week, week and a half, it's amazing how much stronger and confident they are at the other end of the experience, because not that there's anything wrong with orchestra, but a lot of these kids at school have the opportunity to hide because they're one of many. It's easier to just kind of float your bow over the string or fake your part and, you know, just kind of sail by. So, um, yeah, chamber music, I think as also as a learning tool is incredible. Um, and I think it it boosted my confidence because it wasn't just about putting the the right thing at the right time at the right part of the bow, and that being enough, but like I had to say something as I was playing. Like there was intention musically. It wasn't just about fitting your part into the large machine. but you know, there's there was a different sense of musicianship I felt as a quartet player
0: I love that yeah and I feel like there's this common theme that's keep that keeps coming up and it seems like every one of these episodes that I do that's just like finding your voice like once you're able to move past all of that extra noise and like whatever's going on around you and feel like you can fully express yourself and what you have to say through music yeah and yes there is a technical aspect to that. Yes, we have to like put in the time and and learn how to play. But once you feel like you can actually step into that and fully express yourself and not be afraid of what other people are going to say, it's like there's nothing else like it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I remember many performances in my younger life were just being like paralyzed with fear you know before walking on stage that anxiety just like surrounding you and I don't I don't know if I was mature enough at the time to think about where that was coming from but of course it comes from insecurity it comes from worrying about what other people are going to think when they hear you are they going to judge you and man is it exhausting to walk around with that all the time
0: you know, it really and,
1: is. <laughs> and are we? We're not musicians for anyone else, we're musicians for ourselves. So it's like, I should feel good on stage because I'm playing music. But again, in this system where it's like you're told every week, not good enough, work harder, be more in tune. Why wasn't that prepared enough? For me, that set the stage for just like this crippling sense of like, I can't do anything right, I can't. I can't play in tune. Like my my vibrato is bad. My posture is bad. Like, and it was just this, you know, and, and obviously it's our teacher's jobs to to tell us how to be better. But at that age, I didn't have the ability to transfer that beyond just like, well, you suck. And then if you suck as a musician, then you must also suck as a person. <laughs> and yeah, it. and I don't think I'm the only one who's been there. Um, And, you know, when we were chatting the other day, something you said has really connected with me. Um, The fact that we both have medical professionals as parents. And my father, for example, my father's 84, and he just retired last September. And that man has, you know, been a surgeon for the last 50 something years of his life and growing up, he was either always on call or he was talking about like a bowel obstruction at the dinner table, you know, like, and then my mom was a nurse. And so what they, their commonality, like everything revolved around what they did. And so their identity was purely like, I am a nurse. I am a surgeon. That is everything. And when you, when you brought that up the other day, I was like, oh my God, like I grew up with this example of someone whose whole identity was wrapped around their career. And I feel like I, you know, have certainly done that where it's like, if I didn't do music or if I changed the amount of music that was in my life, or I decided to chart a slightly different path, like I'd be disappointing everyone. I'd fail. People, people would wonder, what are you doing? How could you throw that away? but who cares? Right? Like who cares? Like it's, it's, it's our lives to live and our decision to make, but it's so funny how these things early on in life just kind of latch on and create these patterns that are so unhealthy and traumatic in some ways.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, It's hard because we learn everything about how we're supposed to interact in society and how we're supposed to respond to stress. We learn that at home when we're little. Yeah. And um, that can be modeled for us in a really healthy way. And that can be modeled for us in a really dysfunctional way. And that's not a judgment about anyone because everyone in life, we're all just doing the best we can. You know, at all given moments, we're all just doing the best we can with the amount of regulation and tools that we have available to us. And so I don't believe that, um, that anything is necessarily intentional, but that's how we learn um, how to interact with the world. And if what's being modeled to us is my entire identity is wrapped up in this and this is how we interact with each other is only by talking about what we know or what we do for a living. It can be really hard to find a social life as a kid. I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt very much like, Oh my gosh, I, I can only talk about music stuff with other people. Like, what do I talk about?
1: Yeah. No. Um, Yeah. I, I feel like reflecting on my youth, it's, it, you know, it was the one constant, you know, it was the one thing that I did since age eight that I felt like I was good at and all my activities were revolving around that. And there was never a chance really for other things to, there was no room. Right. And, and I, it's always funny, like just, you know, seeing, like, extended family or people you don't talk to any, like, very often. I remember as a young person, they'd be like, how is your music? You know, it's just like, that's even <laughs> what they knew about you. It was like the only qualifier. It was just like, oh, that's the one who plays music. I'm more than that. <laughs> but maybe at that age, didn't even realize that I was more than that because it was, everything was so narrowly focused. And so as an adult, When you think about, okay, I want to be doing things every day that feed me, bring me joy. And of course, clothe me, house me, of course, you know, all those things, necessities. But um, it doesn't necessarily have to be just 100% that. Uh, So that's given me, I've been reflecting on that a lot, especially this past year. Oh, yeah, me too.
0: And absolutely. And I think you know, because we start music so young, too, is I think a big factor as well. Like, most of us, I mean, I I started music, I think, rather late when I was in second or third grade. (laughs) I started taking piano lessons, but I think many people start when they're like four, six, eight years old, and they, um, it becomes a part of your identity at such a young age. When you think about it, any other career path, aside from maybe other artists or performing artists, they don't form that sense of identity around their job until much, much later.
1: Right.
0: And so when somebody does tell us, oh, you're out of tune or, oh, that rhythm is incorrect or whatever, it can be so hard to not associate that yep. with everything that makes up our, our self-identity. And so working through that and and unlearning that and knowing that we are so much more than just this one defining factor can be such an uh a liberating experience right uh and and also i think part of this too is like well oh you're out of tune oh the rhythm's incorrect etc etc to what end like what audience is going to notice that and make a make a judgment about you as a performer maybe a lot maybe but i think that uh, i think that we agree on this That when it comes to music who are we trying to serve and how can we improve our communities through yep. music and empower others rather than just making it about um Replicating what's on the page or what other musicians
1: have done. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, in a lot of ways, being a musician could be labeled as a very self-serving career, right? Because obviously, to get on stage to perform, it's it's doing something for us, you know. And when you and not that there's anything wrong with someone who wins a job with the New York Philharmonic, like good for you, but you get on stage and yes you're playing for people but are you talking to those people are you connecting with those people like one on one are do you are you hearing their stories and yes you're providing a beautiful service like something that is i think culturally rich and necessary in our society but i don't know and that that was that that mentality for Us when we were starting Tetra, for example, um, we wanted to break that wall down a little bit, and understanding that as musicians we have an opportunity to serve others or to just to connect more with those in our community. And in our mission, it was especially those in our community who you could classify as like underserved populations. Um, uh, We, you know, with like Azure Family Concerts, for example, which is tailored to kids on the autism spectrum. For kids who deal with autism, a lot of times you're dealing with uncontrolled movement, vocalizations, you know, think about how a parent feels with a child, like going to a Phoenix Symphony concert. Is that even possible? Because there's all this etiquette that surrounds the experience. You're supposed to dress up. You're supposed to stay quiet. You're supposed to only clap at the designated moments, not in between movements, you know, all this really like, formal stuff. But for that child, that is not a welcoming space because they can't actually exist as they are in that space. So for us with our Azure Family Concerts, let's create a space where these kids can move, they can dance, they can say, scream, yell, whatever they want. It's not going to change. And these parents can just sit down with their kids and enjoy something together which is probably something they don't get to do a lot in that kind of venue. Um it's the same with you know we've we started a program at the Maricopa County Juvenile Detention Centers where we've done um assembly like programs for for kids in these kind of holding programs. These kids are usually in between court dates and so they're just they're just you know, being captain. I mean, who knows where they're going to end up after this? And it's amazing playing for you know these people and how engaged they are, and and they ask questions like, "Why are you here?" Like literally, wondering every time we've gone, "Why are you here? Why did you come here of all places?" It's like, well, you're part of our community just as anyone else is, and you deserve access to a concert and to an experience and I think there's just a lot more opportunity for musicians to be thinking about their role in society as one that is holistic and and serving, not just self-serving, but like serving others. And you don't have to wrap your whole career around that, but I think... I think that's what's going to create new audiences also. We're we're answering this global problem, right? Diminishing audiences, like where is the music industry, classical music industry going? This is where it needs to go. It needs to become relevant. It needs to be something that people can tap into very easily, not just those who have money, not just those who understand that while listening to you know Shostakovich Fifth Symphony that they can't clap after each movement; they have to wait till the end. You know who cares? Like as a musician, if you want to put your hands together to acknowledge that you like that, I love it. Like tell me that you enjoyed it, right? So that's been that's been a real joy of the last eleven years for me. Being part of that of Tetra is just how do we break down these walls? How do we make access to music? Uh, more available and how do we make the music and the way we talk about music and engage with the people we play for relevant because no one cares that oh well, when Schubert wrote this piece he was he was ugh, and like oh the dominant harmony who cares who cares I don't I proudly say that right now. Like it doesn't matter for you know. Anyway, I could I could just wax poetic about this all day, but I don't know. It, it's such classical music can be such an elitist thing, and I think we need to break it down to something more approachable and accessible. So soap soapbox done. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I absolutely I think, agree I that. Laughing,
0: oh yeah. oh um yeah i know that like classical music the way that we the way that we set up classical music concerts and actually i i could go off on a tangent about this too um because the history of why we don't clap between movements is is crazy um And I am really bad with names, so I'm briefly going to say the story for those who don't know, but this really, really rich person in New York City decided it would be hilarious if nobody clapped between movements at this New York Phil concert. And so he paid every single person in the audience not to clap. And the people who were there who um, weren't of the upper class that had paid for a ticket, the people who were standing room only, weren't in on it, so they didn't know. And so they thought that they weren't supposed to clap because that's what everybody else was doing. And so then it became this tradition to not clap between movements, but it's not even a very old thing. It's just something that, like, rich people thought would be funny (laughs) to do. I
1: I remember... Being at a phoenix symphony concert I and mean, this was years ago and after like the first movement of whatever piece we were listening to all of a sudden you hear <coughs> that, like all these like wrong body noises and then like the little old ladies with their like hard candy wrappers and like all this just and i think to myself like were you holding your breath the entire time you were listening to this like when you go to the movies do you just like like people sneeze people cough like sometimes people talk to each other babies cry like but no one is no one is sitting in a movie theater feeling uptight about it right like <laughs> why, why why should an orchestra concert be any different and i think that's like you you see organizations saying like oh we're going to we're going to play more relevant repertoire we're going to We're going to play, you know, the Harry Potter soundtrack with the movie playing behind it. And, like, that's great. Like, I think people would be interested in that. But I don't think it's just about what you're playing. I think it's the environment that you create as you're playing. And if the space is, like, stifled and rigid, who wants to go do that for two hours on a Saturday night? Right? No. (laughs)
0: Oh my gosh, Liz, I could talk about this with yes. <laughs> you all day. I'm just breaking down the barriers of classical music. And yeah. Um, and and so maybe maybe a good question for you is, and I'm not sure that you could answer this on the spot, but to those listening who may want to start serving their communities who are musicians and start... Start doing that kind of work at least a little bit more to yeah. engage with their communities and maybe offer performances or education to some of these underserved communities. Um, what are some things to start going about doing that?
1: I think definitely looking at recognizing where the need is or or even a community that maybe individually you have connection to um, the thing about Azure family concerts is you know. I feel like we all know someone who is at least connected to someone else who has a kid on the spectrum. That's becoming a very common diagnosis that we're seeing in younger people. And and the that beautiful the beautiful thing about the word spectrum is it's it's very wide, you know. And I think again, recognizing the need, a community that maybe you want to tap into that you you consider underserved or whatever you want to label it as. And then just making it happen. I think for, for Azure, for us, it was like we decided we're doing this. And, you know, we raised money through it through our donors. But it's not like, it's not like we're paying ourselves in the sense. Like we didn't start the first concert being like, oh, we're going to make this amount of money doing it. It's not about that at all. So I think recognizing the need and then just have some ingenuity and just make it happen. And I think what's, if you want to go play at your local retirement home, all you have to do is find the email of the activities director and say, I would like to come play for your residents. You think they're going to say no? Absolutely not. Like I know a lot of private teachers who have set up their studio recitals to be at a retirement home because why not instill a little joy in these people's lives? and. I mean there's nothing more than a lot of like older people like to see younger people play and be creative right and yeah so I think just I know that's maybe that's a cop out but like just make it happen like if you're curious and want to do it the opportunity's there mm-hmm. and then if it's something that you want with longevity and you want to invest a lot of time and energy in then start having the conversation of okay I should document this. I should take pictures. I should start writing about it. Maybe there's a grant somewhere that I can get, or maybe there's people in my family who believe in this also. And I'm going to tell them about it. Maybe they want to support it because it means something to them. And hopefully the wheels start going faster.
0: Oh, that's great advice. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know?
1: Um, well, a lot of what we talked about earlier um, with my own reflection of just like, what does it mean to me to be a musician and as, as my career and, and knowing that as a person, I'm not only a musician, also many other things. Um, I finally, you know, my, my husband and I have decided that we're making a big change in our lives. We are, we are going to be moving and I'm going to be leaving behind a, career that I've invested the last 11 years in. And while that's scary to some extent, it's also brought a lot of like freedom. It's like I could almost breathe a little bit because I'm giving myself permission to explore different things. I'm still going to play, I'm still going to teach, but we're we are figuring out a whole new business. I'm 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 tapping into this part of me that I haven't given myself permission to tap into yet and I'm so excited by that. And I don't know what the balance of all these interests and things will look like a year, five years from now. But I feel so relieved that I can, again, give myself the permission to do it and to jump in and be okay. My identity is not just that of a musician. I'm many things. And... For those of you listening and watching, um, as I li- as I leave, I, you know my baby, the Tetris String Quartet, um, which I'm fortunate enough to say I was a founding member of, um, Kim is going to be my replacement, and I couldn't be more happy for you to be taking the reins. I think your perspective as a musician and and just everything is so in line with the mission of the group and I think your inclusion is just going to propel it further forward so I Tetra is going to be lucky to have you
0: oh thank you so much Lewis and I'm so excited for you and to for you to jump into this new career path and a new interest and and figure it all out and um I'm just so I'm so honored. I'm I'm so excited to to be in Tetra and uh, yeah, this is the first time that's <laughs> talking about it is here on the podcast. Um but yeah, I'm super, super excited and, and I can't wait. So thank you so much, Lewis, and thank you for being here and being willing to share part of your story um with us today.
1: Oh well, thanks for having me, Kim. It's been fun and uh again, I I can't wait to to see what you continue to do in the future. I think it's going to be awesome.
0: Thanks so much, Louis. Yeah. So, so to those who are listening, who want to find you, how can, how can they reach out to you?
1: Um, you can go to my website at com. I will warn those of you who are listening, it is currently outdated and is in the process of being <laughs> uh, revamped a little bit. So maybe wait a few weeks before you visit it. I don't know. <laughs> Or on on Instagram, my handle is PrivJr, P-R-I-V-J-R.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit subscribe, give us a rating, and follow on Instagram at The Aligned Musician. Thank you so much and take care.